if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start turning to Judges 19. And uh, that's on page 218 of our guest Bibles, if you happen to grab one of those in the back. While you're turning there, I want to uh, draw your attention to a notorious thought experiment among philosophers called the trolley problem. It's a theoretical ethical dilemma that weighs the morality of sacrificing one person with the goal of saving perhaps a larger number. And the scenario, it's like I said, it's a, it's a thought experiment, and the scenario as it typically consists um, has a, a, a trolley or like a tram that's on a track, and it is, it's a runaway trolley. And it's going to, on the current trajectory, it's going to hit five people and, and kill them. And in this scenario, there's an option for a person to either allow it to continue to go and end up killing the five, or they can intervene and change the direction of the trolley to kill just one. So you can kind of begin to feel a little bit of the, the moral quandary it puts a person in, because in, in, in one sense, by your inaction, five people will die, but by your direct action, one will die. And there's all sorts of variations to the dilemma, and each one presents the option to either do something or do nothing. And so it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for people as they think about it. And in its most basic form, surveys show that the vast majority of people would actually choose to intervene, to kill the one, to save the five, by some 90% of people who fill out surveys in response to this question. But those numbers really start to get interesting when you begin to, to tweak the variables a little bit. Like, for instance, who's the one that you're going to now take out with the trolley that you are now intervening to change the direction of? What if that one is a pediatric cancer doctor whose, whose mission is to save the lives of children? And what if the five are... Talibani terrorists? Does that change the, the moral equation for you a little bit? What if the one is a friend or a lover or your child? Ooh, I saw some wincing with that one. Or consider this scenario. If you're firmly in the camp that says, you know, all things being equal, it's more, it's more moral to take out the one instead of allowing the other five to be taken out. But consider this scenario. You, you put yourself now in the position of an organ transplant doctor. All right, so that's your job is, is you're a surgeon who takes organs and puts them in other people to save their lives. And, and you have an emergency room with five people that each need a different organ urgently or they're about to die. One person needs a heart, one needs a lung, one needs a, a liver, one a kidney, and one a pancreas. And wouldn't you know, your, your bucket of organs is fresh out and it's empty. All right, so what are you going to do? Well, it just so happens in the room next door is a perfectly healthy patient who's taking a nap. You see where this is going. What's the morality of harvesting their organs to save the five, but in the process killing the one? Now, you hear that and you're thinking already, like, that is outrageous. It is outrageous to think that you could play God and go in there and kill this person to save those other five people. How can you value that one person's life over the five? And yet, isn't that exactly almost the scenario of diverting the trolley to kill the one to save the five? 
You, you see how it's, it's a moral dilemma. It's something that kind of breaks the brain and, it, and it, kinds, it causes us all sorts of consternation and we don't know what to do because with each variable, it seems the calculus tends to shift and the morality gets complicated. Now, you can eat up a tremendous amount of time and I would say even waste a tremendous amount of time uh, camping out in a thought experiment and going through all the, the nuances and the variables and, and you can spend even more time you know, going to YouTube perhaps and watching people discuss and debate and work through it, um, as I may or may not have done. I'll let you decide what, what you think has happened here. Um, but what's more fascinating to me is comparing how people will weigh the morality of a theoretical scenario, and yet you have the way they think about something sort of in theory, but then the way morality is actually worked out in their personal life. It's interesting to observe that. You've turned to Judges chapter 19, and I want to read just a few verses from there here momentarily. Um, I was originally planning on preaching this sermon next Sunday, but uh, this past week as I was looking at the calendar and I was, I was um, just making mental note of what each, week, uh, each day of the, of the month, each Sunday of the month is, I realized next Sunday, well, that's Family Fifth Sunday, and so I made a, a moral decision to swap weeks and do Judges 19 this week instead of next week, and, and you'll see why here in a moment. Those of you parents whose kids will be in here, you'll thank me by the time we're done, once you see what's going on in Judges 19, uh, why we are doing that this week instead of next week. Uh, but the book of Judges as a whole recounts that period of time early in Israel's history following the exodus from Egypt and the subsequent um, conquest of Canaan. It's that early period of time in the promised land as, as the 12 tribes of Israel have spread out and settled throughout the land. And it, and it says repeatedly they had no king. And that's because Yahweh, God, was to be their king. But this, of course, required that the people of God follow and obey his word, which they unfortunately rarely did. That's the whole point of the book of Judges. Repeatedly, you see that the people of God disobey God and they, they go astray and, and God rages, raises for them a judge or a person who brings the people back over and over and over again throughout this period of their lives. But they rarely obeyed God and they chose instead to conform to the, the practices of the, the pagan religions, the, the, the pagan peoples that that were in the land and then still surrounded them. And Judges 19 introduces the final section of this book. And in it, we're told there at the beginning of verse 1 of a certain Levite man who goes, uh, and by, by Levite it means he's from the tribe of Levi, and he goes and he uh, takes to himself a concubine. And a concubine, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this concept, it's, it's basically uh, a woman who, who lives with the man as, basically as a wife, but without the full rights of a wife or privileges as, as a wife, okay? Um, thank God we don't do that here uh, today, um, but it was customary and, and, well, for right or for wrong, um, it was a part of life in, in, in these days. And so the man goes and takes for him a concubine, um, but we, we find very quickly in verse 2 that, well, as the NLT says, she gets angry with him. Um, but more literally, in the, in the original languages and in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, it says that she um, was unfaith became unfaithful to him. She literally played the harlot. 
and she leaves the Levite and she goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. And this is the, the, the arrangement for about four months before the Levite decides he's had enough and he wants to reclaim his, his concubine, his, his woman, his wife, whatever you want to call her. And so he, he grabs his, his servant and they take a donkey and they travel to Bethlehem and they reclaim, reclaim her and they begin their long journey back home. And and in the middle of the chapter, we come to the point where they've traveled. They left late in the day. They probably should have left earlier in the morning, but they left later in the day. And as a result of that, they found themselves um, in, in an area at night where they need to find shelter and refuge for the night. And so they stop in the town of Gibeah, which is just north of Jerusalem. And no one welcomed them. No one came out and said, hey, I see that you are weary travelers. I see that you've brought provisions for your, your animal and your servant and yourselves. Uh, come and stay in, in the refuge of, of our house and our compound. Come stay with us and, instead of sleeping out here in the public square. But no one did that. And so they prepared to spend the night out there and, and uh, weather the, the elements and whatever other things might come their way. And it's there where we're going to pick up the story. If, if you had your Bibles open, there in uh, Judges 19, verse 16. So I've, I've tried to summarize verses 1 to 15. Here we are in verse 16. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We have been in Bethlehem in Judah, the man replied. We are on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem, and now I'm returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. Here, Take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up. Let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. As if the story wasn't horrific and gruesome enough, Verse 29, when he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? 
Who's going to speak up? One of my favorite types of stories, and that is whether it's in the form of a book or in a movie or some other medium, is the type where the characters of the story have various layers to their their complexity, to their personality. There's different dimensions to who they are, especially when it's the villain. I love a good, complicated villain. You know, the ones where you know they're bad, you know they're causing trouble. Maybe in this particular part of the movie, they're, they're a thorn in the flesh of the protagonist. They're driving you crazy, and yet you can't help feeling sorry for them or perhaps relating to them in some form or fashion. Or in some cases, you find yourself even rooting for the bad guy. Do you ever find that happening in your, in your stories? Think, I was trying to think of some examples of this, and I, I was trying to think of well, what's a, a fun, whimsical sort of villain that I, that I liked and didn't want to see bad things come to. And I came to uh, Dustin Hoffman's Captain Hook, in Peter Pan. You remember that back in the 90s, the, the Robin Williams version of, of that story? Uh, I think the name of the movie was Hook, actually. And I, I loved his portrayal, and I found myself, I, I don't know, kind of rooting for the bad guy a little bit. I don't know, it kind of bothered me. I, I, well, we'll get into the, to that another time. But, you know, I, I, that was one. I was thinking of maybe um, for you uh, zennials such as I, uh, maybe you remember the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. How about the principal in that movie? What a sort of terrible but pathetic person he was. <laughs> he, he was he was just so despicable, and yet you felt so sorry for the guy by the end of the film. Uh, and it just made just sort of a complicated. He really wasn't wrong in what he was doing. He just was really bad at what he was doing. Um, how, how about um, for you, you Tolkien fans? Uh, you remember the character Boromir in Fellowship of the Ring? There's a guy who had some complicated aspects to his personality and you found yourself through the majority of the story sort of like wary of him and unsure of him and not really trusting him and and even like rooting against him but then you saw why he was the way he was and and you you took pity and then ended up feeling he was heroic and it just is a a, just a really complicated person and and I love stories that have characters like that yeah this this isn't one of those stories This isn't one of those stories at all. There is no one villain because really everybody's the villain. And there's not a whole lot of complexity to their villainry. It's all pretty simple. There's an evil here that touches everybody that really slaps you in the face when when you read it, but especially when you read it out loud like I did a moment ago. I felt it all over again. I've read the story countless times, and yet I've only read it out loud a handful of times. And every time I do, the the evil and the depravity and the outrage of the the scandal of this story strikes me afresh. Everyone in the story has guilt of some kind. Take the mob in verse 22 that surround the house and demand that they, they, the, the old man send the man out so that they can they can do things that are abominable to him. And, and then when they don't get the man, they take the concubine and they basically gang rape her all night and to the point of death. It's, dis- it's despicable and disgusting and outrageous. Or how about the Levite who, who grabs his, his concubine and throws her through the door and you can picture him slamming it shut. Whew. He's a coward. He's He's evil. And then he's calloused in his treatment of her when he opens the door and finds her body. The picture is just so shocking. Her draped across the threshold with her hands in this posture of desperation. Please save me from this. And he sees her and he says, get up. Get up. (laughs) I comically think of a friend of mine uh, from New Jersey. 
very New Jersey-style personality, he and his dad. And he told me a story about a time when he had a fairly significant injury to his head or his face or something. He came to his dad and he said, Dad, I got this. And the dad says, what are you, a model? Like, (laughs) get over it. Just very like hard, kind of calloused response to someone in need. And I mean, this is like that times a million. Get up. What's wrong with you? It's time to go. You almost sense the irritation that he, this, this, this woman is slowing him down. And then, of course, in chapter 20, as he's telling all of Israel about the story, he's, he strategically hides certain details about it. This, this guy is just thoroughly disgusting and despicable. How about the old man who originally at first seems like a pretty nice guy? He's concerned about the Levite. He's, he's hospitable. He welcomes them into his home. He even at some level tries to plead with the mob that surrounds him. And yet even he, in, in the interest of saving one, would, would throw the most innocent among them out, his own daughter. Here, take them. T- take her and take the concubine. He's just as, he has just as much culpability here as the Levite in my estimation. You might be saying, well, the, the concubine, she was innocent. Into it. You're right. She, she is innocent. She is, we are right to pity her. This is a horrible situation of a woman being victimized. But in the broader picture, even she, back in verse 2, is described as, as unfaithful. Maybe not, um, she's not worthy of a death sentence. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying even the most innocent person in the story plays the harlot in the story. Now you might, when I was reading that, maybe you haven't heard that story before, or maybe you have, um, and it was familiar to you. Maybe you haven't, but it was familiar in another way, in the sense that there's another story. It was, it was in your mind. There's another story that was kind of like this one that I heard. That's not the same, but it's different. What was that? And you're thinking of Genesis 19. Do you remember Genesis 19? It's that story where a couple of visitors travel to Sodom. Now, we're told in the story that they weren't just regular people. These were angels in disguise. They've traveled to Sodom, and, and they intend to stay the night in the town square. And, and a certain man named Lot sees them there and says, oh, don't stay out here. Come stay with me. And he's, it's, he's the old man in the story. And they come, and they stay. And, and what, what happens at night? Well, the same kind of mob desiring the exact same kinds of things, show up and began pounding on the door, saying, send, send him out, send them out, send the angels out. And or the visitors, they, from their perspective, the visitors, send your guests out so that we can do these things to them. And Lot, like the old man, no, 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 take my virgin daughters instead. This is almost the exact same story. Now, in that story, just as the mob is getting ready to, to break the door down and take the people by force. It says that the angels struck everyone blind and the crowd dispersed. The concubine didn't have that luxury in Judges 19. It's as if we're seeing Sodom all over again, only worse. And I think that's the point of the story. I think the writer wants the reader to see Gibeah as new Sodom. Only this time, it's not in some foreign, pagan, godless land. No, no, new Sodom is right in the heart of Israel. A nation, a people who are morally corrupt. 
If you do a little digging, you'll see that this story, though it comes at the end of the book, chronologically in history, actually this event took place towards the beginning of the period of the Judges. How do you know that, Pastor Sean? Well, in chapter 20, verses 27 and 8, it talks about the location of the ark, and it talks about how Phinehas was the high priest. That is the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother. That, that is very early chronologically in the history of, of Israel and in the period of the judges, and yet this story is at the end of the book. Well, and that's because biblical writers sometimes rearrange the chronology of things because they have a thematic purpose in mind. It's not, it's not a lie. It's just another way of telling a story. It doesn't make it less true. It's used to emphasize a point. And you might be saying, well, what's the point? Well, it seems like this event, though chronologically early, forms something of a climax to what the entire book is all about. Chapter 19, in the very first verse, begins with a statement that is also found at the very end of the book, in the end of this larger story, in chapter 21, verse 25, that says this, in those days, and this is the theme repeated all throughout, all throughout the book of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king. What's it say next? All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. It's as if, after all these stories of how Israel had turned from Yahweh again and again and again, the writer places this story at the end to finish his book as if to say, you thought all that was bad, check this out. When there is no king, when there is no ruling presence over the human heart, when, when people are left to their own devices, when they become their own standard of right and wrong, well, this is what happens. Some people try to avoid this conclusion by asserting, well, there is no true right or wrong. And they try to make morality completely subjective. That's, that's many people's takeaway, by the way, from the trolley problem. That th there's, there are no ultimate moral right and wrong. Because if, if a simple moral solution isn't found in this story, well, then it means that there is no objective moral solutions anywhere. Others argue that, that history is what determines whether something is acceptable or immoral. Or some people place it on society. It's society's determination to, to decide what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, what is true, what is false. Many people just boil it down to how they feel. This is my truth. This is my morality. And the question is, for all of these perspectives, what happens when you live in a time in history, when you live in a time in history in a particular place where the majority of people are so corrupt that they agree that X, Y, or Z evil thing is acceptable? What happens? Do you not find yourself in 21st century America increasingly in a place and in a time like that? Where every day it seems the majority of the people are in agreement that X, Y, and Z immoral thing is in fact moral? Can you rely on society to tell you what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is, what is true and what is false? Can you rely on your emotions? Can any one of you rely on your own conscience or your own emotions of what is right and wrong? I mean, the most 
evil, despicable people in the history of the world were convinced of the morality of their worldview and their decisions. All of these responses, and really any response that rejects the presence of an objective moral standard, ultimately assumes that there is no higher authority or truth beyond the self. That's really what it boils down to. Either there is a standard beyond me that transcends me, that transcends us, or we are the standard. It's a simple decision, a simple choice. It's either there is something objective or it's all subjective. And though most people tend to view themselves as pretty good people, (laughs) and that's true of people, most people tend to think that they're decent. The book of Judges shows that the problem with people is not that they do individually bad things from time to time, but that there is a condition that defines and marks the human heart that is evil. There's something. It's not just you're a good person that, asks, that does bad things from time. No, you are a bad person. There is no good person. Judges exist to show us that we have a condition that wants to be in charge. You know, it's interesting. It's almost a, it's almost a play on words that says Israel had no king, and yet they did. They did have a king, but they rejected him. They didn't want the king they had. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the final arbiter of the truth. They want to be the ultimate moral authority. And that's all. That is people. People want to be their standard. They want to indulge in whatever impulses they have, whatever cravings they have, whatever things they think will satisfy them, and they will use and abuse whatever persons around them to satisfy or to save themselves. That's people. Some to greater degrees than others, for sure. But that's people in a nutshell. Do you know what I find most shocking about this passage? I didn't even read it, but I want to go back and read it. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's in your Bibles, or you can just listen. Just two verses from earlier in the chapter, uh, verses 11 and, tw- 11 and 12. Listen to this. So they, they left Bethlehem. They began their journey, and it says, It was late in the day when they neared Jebus. Jebus, by the way, was the name of the town that later became Jerusalem. And it was filled with people, Canaanites, who were called Jebusites. Okay? So that it was late in the day, they neared Jebus, and the manservant said to him, Let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night here. And the master says in verse 12, No, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we will go on to Gibeah. Isn't that interesting? This horrifically prideful, arrogant, blind to the reality of the self attitude of this Israelite that says, oh, I can't be around them. We can't stay there. We have to go to our people. (laughs) It's interesting. Even good people Even God's people are really quick to point out the evils out there. Oh, those godless people. Those fill in the blank with the person who's the opposite of you. Religiously, politically, socially, economic, whatever. Thank God we're not them. 
And yet, in Judges, it's not the pagans who are the villain of the story. It's God's own people. They're the villains. They're the ones called to be God's covenant people who refuse to be bound by the covenant. And it's a sad commentary on the human condition when even the people of God will not have God rule over them. And so Judges is not about a dark time in the history of the people called Israel. Ultimately, Judges is about the darkness that lies at the heart of all men. Even the really good ones. Speaking of a really good man, if you, if you want to, you can. Keep your finger here and flip over to Mark chapter 10. It'll be on the screen, so you don't have to do this. But if you want to follow along in your own Bible, please feel free to do that. There's a really good guy mentioned in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Let me read this to you here. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. By the way, those aren't all the Ten Commandments. I think Jesus is going somewhere with that. That's for another sermon, but check that out sometime. Which ones did he leave out and why? Verse 21, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Were you listening closely to this description of this good guy? And perhaps in in that you were comparing and contrasting him to the people in Judges 19. And in many ways, he's completely different from them. He would make a great protagonist. I wish there was a rich young ruler in this story. One who has kept all the commandments that deal with interacting with the people around him. He would have been a great protagonist in Gibeah. A man who runs to Jesus. He didn't walk to Jesus. There's an urgency. He detects something in Jesus. There's a sincerity in, in his approach. There's something real going on here. It's, it's amazing and beautiful. And, and I wish there were more people in our church, in our community, in our world that would run to Jesus like this man does. And he falls to his feet. He calls him good teacher. He's, there's a, a, a recognition, an acknowledgement of of, of at least part of who Jesus is. There's, there's a, 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 a hunger. There's a desire for him. Tell me what I need to know. He's asking all the right questions, saying all the right things. He's following it to the letter, exactly what you want out of someone that comes to Jesus. The perfect protagonist. He's never broke, a, broke covenant once. Jesus, good teacher, I've kept all of these my whole life. He's the exact opposite of every person in Judges 19, except for one thing. Because in one way, he's no different than them at all. And it's the one way that makes all the difference. 
Because in his life, there was one thing that mattered more than Jesus. The one thing he wouldn't let go control of. There was an area of his life that was primary that he asserted his right to control. I will be Lord of this. Good teacher, tell me, tell me how I can have eternal life in this. And whether it's one thing or a thousand things, the result is always the same. Even the very best person who wants the benefits of Jesus without the demands of his lordship, even the very best person who wants to retain their rights, to call the shots, to decide what is right, what is good, what is true, what is best, whoever retains the right of lordship over a little part of their life or a lot of their life, they are not worthy of being his disciple. You are not worthy to to follow Jesus. If there's one thing that's better than him to you. Don't get lost in the gore and the scandal of Judges 19 and miss the deeper point. The deeper point is that at the root of every person, sinful man seeks to do what is right in his or her own eyes. And all the sins of the world boil down to this. And they come from this, the problem of the human heart. And we're so outraged by the horrors around us, and rightfully so, I hope you're at least moderately outraged by what's going on in our culture and in the world today. But what about what's going on in here? What about our rebellion against the lordship of Christ? against his rightful claim of the totality of who you are. Your heart, your soul, your mind. We render the last word strength, but the Hebrew, where that comes from, is a really complicated word, and people debate on how to describe, how to define that word, and the best I've heard yet is your everythingness. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul. Jesus added mind because of the Greek context in which he was teaching and your everythingness, all that you are. What about when we say yes to him 99 times and no to him once? We're outraged at the scandal of Gibeah, but what about our own acts of self-preservation our own selfish indulgences or exploitation of others as a means to an end? What about our own cowardices, our own injustices? You and I can be just as guilty of making ourselves our own moral standard in real life. There is a reason the Bible addresses this problem so persistently. <laughs> Tim Keller says this, and I love that I love, he's so good at... Um, Boiling things down to a, a, a single statement. He says, as long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. That's good. Man, that'll preach. The idea 
As long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. Only when we come to terms with just how bad we actually are can we begin to see just how much we are loved by God. And in Jesus, we see that love in the flesh. It is a love that is completely contrary to everything in this story. The mob is driven by its impulses and will to do anything to satisfy its twisted cravings and desires. Jesus denied himself. Jesus was only ever interested in the will of his father. Completely the opposite of the mob. The Levite is selfish and heartless and cowardly. Jesus boldly and selflessly gives his life away. The two men, the Levite and the old man together, offer the weakest among them to save their own skin. Jesus offered himself to save everyone's skin. The concubine, the unfaithful one. Oh, Jesus is always faithful. Always faithful. Everyone in Judges 19 uses others however necessary to get what they want. And apart from God's grace, friends, you and I are no different than they. We are the perverted. We are the abusive mob. We are the cowardly and the calloused and the deceitful, self-preserving men. You and I are the unfaithful concubine who plays the harlot. And yet it is to us, even people like us, that God extends his hand of grace. And he doesn't show up in the, the scene of human history and shove people through the door. No. He himself walks through it. And it was his body that was, that was punished and abused. He was beaten and broken. Not in spite of our unfaithfulness, but because of it. And not for a noble people or a good people or a people who deserved it. No, but he did it for a people stuck in the ravages of sin and darkness and abuse and hatred and wickedness. And you and I will never know how much we are loved until we see just how bad we actually are. And yet this is the gospel that we sing about. I think it was the second song. We sang about the gospel. The gospel that says this, Jesus sees and knows the very worst of you, and yet Jesus loves you more than you'll ever know. Man, that's some good news. In the great moral dilemma that is humanity, the choice for God is not between one innocent person and a handful of guilty persons, because all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all guilty before him. No, he didn't choose to kill one to spare a few. No, he gave up himself to save us all. That's the kind of God that can be trusted. That's the kind of God that can be worshipped and adored. That's the kind of God that we can obey. I want to listen to a God like that. I want to hear what he has to say for my life. Because I know at the end of the day, no matter how hard what he says is, no matter how challenging or controversial or opposed to the, the, the sort of the, the consensus of society, no matter how much it doesn't make any sense to my mind, I can trust his heart. I can trust it. 
I know that he has what is best for me in mind and what leads to his glory. I can trust him, and therefore I can obey him, and I can give all my life over to him. No questions asked. That's the kind of God worth giving your life over to forever. And that's the kind of God that we are inviting you this morning to come to and believe and to follow and then share with the world that needs good news. Would you be such a people today who begin the journey like the rich young ruler (laughs) but end it in a totally different way altogether? I hope there's not one thing that you're clinging to before Jesus. Because if you are, you're not worthy to follow him. But he invites you to himself today. Pastor Jeff, let's, let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are, we are the townspeople of Gibeah. We are the, the old man and the Levite. We are the concubine the harlot. We have been guilty of making ourselves like all of the nation of Israel did in the time of Judges and like all people in all times in all places have done of making ourselves the ultimate standard of what is right and wrong. Of claiming lordship over our own lives and of rebelling against you in your rightful place as number one. We're guilty of it. Lord, forgive us for making ourselves the standard when none of us are righteous. No, not one (laughs) on our own. Lord, forgive us where we have by our actions brought pain and suffering and misery to others. But Lord, perhaps even more to the point, forgive us for our inaction, which has done nothing for the, the harm and the injustice in the suffering of others. Lord, thank you that we get to respond to this message, not just with the option to come pray at a place of prayer, but to engage in a, a packing party where we get to take action that doesn't result in the harm of another, but in the life of another. We get to, to do something with our hands today that can result in stomachs being filled, but more importantly, Lord, we want souls brought into the kingdom. Help us to be a people who take action, motivated purely out of our love for you and response to who you are and all that you've done. Thank you, God, that you loved us to the point of of death, even death on a cross. You came and died the death we rightly have earned and deserved. And you offer us freely the life that is yours. And all we must do is trust you and obey. The very essence of faith, trusting and trusting obedience. Lord, may we do that this morning in every day of our lives until you return or call us home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is there for you. As you stand and join us in the closing song of response, you can come and pray, come see me. Um, I told you, I think it was last week, that two weeks in a row I've had a team come and ask for me to lead them 
you know, to Jesus, and then it happened a third week in a row, and I want to keep this streak going. If there's someone here who's never said yes to Jesus, and you want to come and say yes to him today, come and see me, and we'll, we'll, I'll help you say yes to Jesus for the first time in your life. Please stand now, and let's join in in this time of response.